0: Last week, we discussed the impermanent and selfless nature of the five aggregates. And these contemplations are an essential part of the Buddha's teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta, what the Buddha called the direct path to realization. Tonight, I'd like to address a fundamental question bringing in some perspectives from other Buddhist traditions as well. The question is, how can we live our lives dedicated to realization, dedicated to awakening, and still be fully engaged in our life in the world? This is not an easy thing to do. You know, we often think of people becoming monks or nuns as choosing the difficult way. Actually, they're choosing the easy way, and we're choosing the difficult way. This is what the Dalai Lama said He said, Within a short time span, it is impossible to change all our concepts or the entire attitude of our minds, it needs constant application. Speaking from my own small experience, from the age of about 16 or 17, I began to make some serious effort to change and improve my outlook. Now, and this was some time ago, at 55, some 39 years have gone by. Several decades have passed, yet still the result is not satisfactory. We do have to struggle and to work hard, and that is the reality. So if that's the Dalai Lama's assessment, we, we may have a different assessment of his progress on the path. <laughs> but it's the realization that it is hard to do. This, this is not a trivial undertaking, this purification of our minds, of our hearts. One framework of understanding that can give us a direction and give us a structure to our efforts to how we can undertake this in the world is found in the expansive teachings of what in Buddhism is called bodhijitta. A bodhijitta is a word in Pali and Sanskrit. Bodhi means wisdom or awakening, and jitta means heart. So we could say the heart mind of awakening. And this has two levels. The relative level of bodhicitta is compassion. And for us in practice, it can take the form and the very deeply transforming insight that our practice is not for ourselves alone. That we can nurture the aspiration, the motivation of undertaking the practice, engaging in it for the welfare and benefit of all beings. Cultivating this aspect of bodhichitta, this aspect of compassion, helps to open our hearts. It broadens our path. And it connects our practice here, connects all our efforts with other beings. So this is the relative level of bodhichitta, compassion. The ultimate level of bodhichitta this awakened heart awakened mind is the empty nature of the mind itself so relative bodhicitta is compassion ultimate bodhicitta is emptiness and it's said that when these two are present enlightenment is unavoidable so it's worth considering you know how we can cultivate both these aspects in our lives and in our practice A transforming realization is that compassion and emptiness are not, in essence, two different things. They're not polarities. But rather, as we deepen our understanding, we see that they are expressions of each other. There's one teaching by the great, I think, 18th century Tibetan master Shabkar, And this teaching expresses the union of the relative and absolute or ultimate bodhicitta, emptiness and compassion. He taught the mind's nature, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So these words are a direct pointing to our own minds. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. How can we understand what intrinsically empty means? Because in English, the word emptiness for most people is not all that appealing. It really doesn't seem like some great spiritual goal or aspiration. You know, what are you striving for? Emptiness. Somehow, it doesn't always inspire us. You know, because in English, the word might imply a lack or an absence or a loss or kind of a blank nothingness. But in Pali and Sanskrit, the word for emptiness is shunyata. And in the context of understanding the dharma and our own minds and experience in the world, this word shunyata has many profound implications which the word in English doesn't really convey. And different of the Buddhist traditions emphasize one or another of these perspectives or implications of shunyata. Most fundamentally, it means that all things are empty of self. But that's fundamentally what emptiness refers to empty of self. So on this most basic level, we can understand emptiness to mean lack of self-centeredness. Now usually in our lives, when we think of self-centeredness, we might think of it as a kind of emotional or psychological deficiency you know, that we might suggest our friends go to a therapist for you know they're very self-centered something's something's just not quite adjusted right but self-centeredness actually has a much deeper meaning it's when we hold or create a sense of self to be at the center of our lives self-centeredness we create this sense of self to be at the center And then this sense of self or concept of self becomes the reference point for all that we think and sense and feel. It's the idea or the felt sense that there's someone behind this process of mind and body to whom it is happening. And as we've talked over these last weeks, it's the felt sense or conceptualization of my body, my feelings, my thoughts, my job, my relationship, my religion, my beliefs, my opinions. We begin to see that this sense of I or mine is quite extra. But for the most part in our lives, we are living in the gravitational field, the gravitational pull, of this self center. You know, and all of our hopes and our fears, our plans and our worries are all revolving around this sense of self, this belief in self. All our desires revolve around this sense of self. Amazing that we continue to be seeking, you know, ever new experiences, even knowing that they continually change. But we keep seeking you know, new experiences as if the next one will fulfill us. And this is what the Buddha was illuminating when he reminded us that this beginningless samsara you know this endless round of birth and death and whether you think of it within one lifetime of the birth and death moment after moment or over many lifetimes is just fueled by our chasing after or clinging to one experience of the aggregates or another it's only the five aggregates which are arising and passing And yet because we're living in this gravitational pull of the self center, we keep chasing after new experiences. Ramana Maharshi, you know, who's that very great Indian saint of the last century, he had a wonderfully counterbalancing instruction to this continual seeking for new experience to this self-center, he said, try to be less, not more. You know, and I just find that so concise. It, it, like, it just turns us around. Instead of the effort to be more, we can just turn around, let go and be less. Through a sustained wise attention, through sustained mindfulness, and concentration and wisdom, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit. You know, and we are slowly drawn into the gravitational pull, the gravita- gravitational field of the Dharma. And we get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness of self rather than the self-center of I or mine. You know, the the great Sufi poet and philosopher and mystic Rumi, he said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. And so our practice gets us in touch with or allows us to reside in the nowhere, That we come from. So, the challenging question, I think, for all of us as Dharma practitioners leading lives in the world, leading a lay life in the world, how can we open to and realize this emptiness of self in the midst of full and busy lives? You know, is this possible for us? To actually come to this realization of emptiness. So, tonight I'd like to explore different ways we can experience it. In a a whole variety of ways, we actually can begin to understand it and realize it and have this understanding transform our lives. So sometimes we get intimations of selflessness in very ordinary experiences. You know, have you had moments in your lives when you just enter into some kind of effortless flow? You know, it might be in music, it might be in sports, it might be in work. We're just sitting quietly in nature. You know, we're in a zone where things just seem to be going on by themselves and also seem much better for it you know that we've gotten out of the way there's a there's a little couplet by the chinese poet li po he said we sit together the mountain and me until only the mountain remains yeah you know, and i think at different times we've all had either glimpses or real sustained experiences. And things are just go, going along without the sense of I. They're in that kind of effortless flow of experience. Well, that's, that's an intimation. That's a connection. The experience of emptiness. Sometimes we're reminded of emptiness of self uh, by our teachers Either by their presence or by their words, you know one of the most vivid images in my mind is when Deepa Ma, who I spoke of last week, uh, you know this wonderful, wonderful teacher realized being uh, from India, uh, she was visiting and teaching here uh, at IMS. And I remember very vividly one time. I was going into the hall, you know, for the evening talk, and she came in. And she did her bows to the Buddha. And it was so extraordinary watching her do this, because it was just this feeling of emptiness bowing to emptiness, of love bowing to love. It wasn't. Deepama bowing to the Buddha. It wasn't like a person or a personality. It was just the Dharma bowing to the Dharma. And her presence transmitted that, just the way of her being. Being with teachers who live or manifest this realization of emptiness in their lives seemed to reflect back to us our own places of holding when we're with them, it's like they become a mirror for us that reflects back where we're holding, where we're clinging, where, where we're attached. And they remind us that there is another possibility. You know, they often are like a mirror reflecting back our own ego projections. And it's not always that pleasant to see them, but it's illuminating you know, and ultimately very insightful. There's a story of a student of Kala Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan masters uh, of of the last century and has since been re, reborn, reincarnated. Uh, but this goes back, you know, to the, to the early 70s. And a student, there was a woman student of his who had been with him in India, then went back to someplace in Canada, I think it was Alberta or Saskatchewan, where there was no Dharma scene at all at that time. You know, and so she was feeling very bereft of support. And she wrote this long letter to Kala Rinpoche, you know, a very devotional letter, and saying, the only thing that keeps me going is holding you in my heart. And then some weeks later, she gets a card back from Rinpoche, and it just has one line on it: "The nature of the heart is emptiness." Just right? <laughs> Okay, you're holding on here. Let's let's take that clinging away. But not only being not only empty, but also very compassionate. A few weeks later, a follow-up came. And so his first response was the nature of the heart is emptiness. But then he wrote, when you practice the holy dharma, slowly clouds of sorrow will drift away and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. You know, and so when we can let go, when we can reside in the understanding of emptiness, emptiness of self, emptiness of clinging, We do need to let go of attachment, to let go of clinging, to realize this. But then the sun of wisdom and great joy shine in the clear sky of our minds. So sometimes we taste emptiness in that effortless flow. Sometimes we're reminded of this experience through our teachers who are manifesting it, either in their presence and or their words. We can also experience emptiness of self in our meditation practice, this lack of self-centeredness. Now, there are times in practice when our mindfulness has gotten so sharp and so developed that we're seeing the great rapidity of change it's something which I call NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, and in the beginning, you know, the NPMs maybe there's 10 NPMs or 15 NPMs, you know, noticings per minute. But as our mind gets quieter and more concentrated, more mindful, the NPMs go way up. You know, and even within one breath or hearing a sound. We begin to notice many, many subtle vibrations and changes in flow. We begin to see how quickly things are moving and changing. And in that <clears throat> awareness of the rapidity of change, we see that nothing is lasting long enough to be called self. It's like sitting by the side of a river, you know, and just watching one spot. And realize it's so, it's so clear that our mind or attention can't hold on to, to anything because the water is just continually flowing and changing. It doesn't stop for a moment. And at that time, even the concept of river disappears. It's only moment after moment after moment changing experience. And at this time we can also let go even of the concept of present moment. Now, we don't even hold on or or fixate the mind on the present, but we let go of that as well. And there is simply the open, empty, selfless nature of the mind and experience. There was a very early... student of Uba Kin, who was Goankaji's teacher in Burma. Her name was uh, Jocelyn King. And she had a, a wonderful little phrase. She said, It's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. You know, but we've taken our stand on the quicksand of somethingness. how often do we just slip into or fall into the quicksand of our thoughts or emotions, into the quicksand of all the stories we tell about ourselves, about each other, forgetting the empty, selfless nature of the thoughts and emotions themselves. You know, we're taking our stand in the content, and it is like quicksand, not seeing that the thought and the emotion is just part of the empty flow as well. A line which Muninjaji used, <coughs> my first teacher, very often, which I've mentioned to many of you in interviews, but it was, <laughs> it's just a line that has been so helpful to me over the years. And he said, The thought of your mother is not your mother, it's a thought. And you can just substitute anything for mother. You know, whatever you're worried about, whatever you're planning, whatever you're desiring, whatever you're remembering, the thought of the past is not the past, it's a thought. The thought of the future is not the future, it's a thought. The thought of your job is not your job, it's a thought. And so just to see that over and over again and how we get pulled into thinking that the content of the thought is somehow the thing itself, and then just live in that reality for however long we do, not seeing the empty, selfless nature of the thought, of the emotion. As phenomena themselves, they are completely insubstantial. But we're not well practiced in seeing that. You know, And that's a lot of what we do here. It's just training the mind to see actually what's happening. Sometimes, and, and you, you know, may well have had this experience at different times, with sitting or walking, and we just have the experience of everything happening by itself, it's as if the body is walking and it's not us, or the breath is breathing itself. And this happens when there's a strong momentum of mindfulness. When that particular factor of mind has been developed and strengthened, it just starts working by itself. It doesn't require effort. And we get into this field of flow of mindfulness, of awareness. So we can experience emptiness of self through the rapidity of change, through seeing that things don't last long enough to be called self. When we free ourselves from being lost in the content of thought and emotion and seeing the impermanent, empty nature. When we get into the flow of experience through an effortless mindfulness. We can also understand and experience emptiness, shunyata, emptiness of self, in a profoundly transforming way, when we begin to see through our own investigation, our own careful attention, that there is no existing independent thing that the word self or I refers to. So we use the concept conventionally, but when we look carefully, we see those words, those concepts, are not pointing to anything real, to any, any self-existing thing which could be called self. So just as an example of this, you know, we take a very familiar experience. Uh, you know, when you look up after a, sometimes a summer storm, uh, and the sun comes out and we see a rainbow, you know, and our first response, oh, that's a beautiful rainbow, and, you know, we feel a certain kind of happiness. And we have the idea that the word rainbow refers to something. But when we look more carefully, we see that rainbow is just a designation for a collection, we could say, of aggregates, of physical, of physical elements. It's an appearance arising out of light, and moisture, and air. You know, when these conditions come together and there's an appearance of something. Well, there's no rainbow apart from those changing elements. When they come together in a certain way, there's an appearance. And I had a very strong experience of this I was visiting some friends on Kauai, in Hawaii. We were hiking along the coast, and we came to a place where there's a blowhole. And a blowhole is a formation where there's, it's like a cave-like opening to the waves. You know, so the waves come in to this opening to the cave in the rock, but there's, there's a hole in the top of what would be the cave, you know of that rock formation, and so the waves come pounding in, and then shoot up through, you know, the hole in the top. So it's a bit like a geyser, and then the wave goes out, and the water falls away. So we were just watching this phenomenon. It was it was really just interesting and powerful to watch, but the sun was at such a, a place that every time, you know, the the water came up into straight up into the air, a rainbow, a little rainbow appeared, and then the wave went out, the water disappeared, the rainbow disappeared. And then again, there's the very next wave that came in. new spray, new rainbow. And And it's just such an obvious teaching in how what we call rainbow is only an appearance that comes as certain conditions come together. It's not a thing in itself. Well, when we look carefully we see that what we call self or I... Self or I is like a rainbow. It's a designation. Self, I, Joseph, is a designation for a certain appearance. You know, arising as different mental, physical elements are in relationship to one another. And when we look even more closely we see that the elements themselves, the physical elements and mental elements themselves, are empty and insubstantial. So we look, we look and look and we see that there's nothing there you know, that could be called self or I. This is a teaching from Zigar Kongchul Rinpoche. He said, The experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance as many people mistakenly assume. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. When we recognize the appearances and don't grasp, don't identify with, don't cling, don't fixate, right in that moment we are experiencing the emptiness of phenomena. So we experience emptiness through our meditation practice, through the rapidity of change, through seeing that the words of self or I don't refer to anything except in appearance. There's another way, powerful way, we transforming way we experience emptiness in our lives, and this is the realization and the experience and understanding that things are not amenable to our will. So, this is another meaning of anatta that is, selflessness also means ungovernableness. We cannot say with any hope of success at all, may my body never age. May my body not get ill or sick. May it not die. May I only have pleasant mind states. These things are not subject to our will, to our control. Every experience arises out of appropriate conditions. When the conditions are there for something to arise, that's when that experience will arise. Not because it has some permanent self-existent nature. Everything is arising out of conditions. It's an appearance out of conditions coming together, forming like a cloud forms in the sky and then dissipates as the conditions change. Experiences arise out of conditions, not because it has some self-existent state, and not because it belongs to us in some way that we can command. If we want something to happen, we need to understand the conditions necessary for that thing to arise. The thought, may the water boil, may the water boil, will never get us a cup of tea. We need to raise the temperature of the water by some effective means. That's the condition for the cup of tea. So just as an experiment and a a way to practice this in our lives. Pay attention to those moments in your lives and in your meditation practice here when things are not conforming to your wishes. You won't have to wait long. It might be some condition of the body. You know, maybe it's getting sick or getting older or just some illness might be difficulties in a relationship that's not working out the way we want it might be going to the airport 2 hours early and finding the plane the flight has been canceled you know things are not happening the way we want them to happen or coming into the hall you know anticipating a nice clear sitting and you sit down and you just have a painful, restless, agitated sitting. Whatever the circumstances may be at that particular time, notice how they are happening because of a multitude of very specific conditions and not because we want them or don't want them to be a certain way, our wanting has very little to do with it. It has to do with the conditions being present. This understanding and we need to, you know, go from a theoretical nod of the head yeah, that's right to the experience right in the moment when we're in that moment of things not being the way we want them to be and seeing what our response is, the more we can understand and experience this quality or this aspect of emptiness directly, the ungovernableness of experience, that things are not amenable to our will, but arise out of conditions, the more we see this again and again, there is a growing ability to let go. And the more we can let go of the illusion of control, the feeling that I should be able to control this, the less we're subject to the tantrums of our inner two-year-old you know, when things aren't the way we want them to be. Have you had any inner tantrums lately <laughs> you know, about one's practice or experience? Now, what's interesting about this is that the, the more we can see this and let go of the illusion of control, the more clearly we can actually see what are the conditions necessary to accomplish our aim. We see more clearly what actually needs to be done when we let go of the idea or the illusion, well, it should be done because that's how I want it to be. So instead of the posturings of self, I want it this way and not otherwise instead of that, the posturings of self, there is actually the activity of wisdom. We see, oh, for this result, we need these conditions. Now, I often reflect upon this with respect to the world and politics. You know, it would be much, the world would be a much better place if the response to situations would not be the posturings of, I want it this way and not that way but really see what are the conditions necessary to accomplish that. So this is another meaning of emptiness, one we can really practice with in our lives, seeing and understanding that things are not amenable to our will. They're ungovernable in that way. They're arising out of conditions. Certain Buddhist traditions emphasize yet another aspect of emptiness. So you see there are many different ways. This, this is a, a hugely rich arena of understanding. This, this word shunyata, emptiness, or emptiness of self. So this other, this other perspective on it, which is emphasized in many traditions, is seeing the empty, sky-like nature of the mind. This is a short teaching from Padmasambhava, who was the great Indian adept, who brought Buddhism to Tibet. He said, It is certain that the nature of the mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. This is a very direct instruction for us to look at our own minds, to look at the nature of our own minds. And we can see the empty sky-like nature of awareness Now, there's a distinction. Sometimes people describe this empty, sky-like nature as being a quality of great spaciousness. This was mentioned to one, uh, one teacher, a Tibetan teacher, and he said, well, that's not exactly the best description because spaciousness itself can become or is a state of mind. And he said, the real understanding of emptiness of mind is not so much spaciousness as groundlessness. And I thought that was a wonderful distinction. You know, so it's not just to create this spaciousness of mind and rest in this state of spaciousness. It's to recognize the ultimate groundlessness. It's like the openness of an open window. So this practice, this direct looking at the empty, sky-like, open nature of the mind is not the deconstruction of the sense of self, but it's rather a direct recognition of the mind's empty nature. There's a wonderful... or teaching of Chuang Tzu. And this was in a a book of translations by Thomas Merton uh, called The Way of Chuang Tzu. And in this particular poem, the title of it is Starlight and Non-Being. And the little story is that starlight went out in search of non-being. Okay, and so starlight's just... Roaming the universe, searching for non being. So, these are the last lines of this particular uh, poem or teaching. Starlight kept his gaze fixed on the deep void. All day long he looked and he saw nothing. Remember, he's looking for non being. He listened. But he heard nothing. He reached out to grasp and grasped nothing. Then starlight exclaimed at last, This is it. This is the furthest yet. Who can reach it? And if on top of all this, non-being is, who can understand it? So that's, that's just a wonderful expression. I, I love that. If on top of this non-being is, or the isness ness of non-being. So we can experience, so we can practice with our understanding of emptiness in all these ways, just the effortless flow sometimes we get into in our lives, kind of the transmission from teachers of that quality in which they're manifesting. We experience in our meditation practice in terms of the rapidity of change, that nothing is lasting long enough. We see that the word self or I don't actually refer to anything substantial. You know That it's just a designation for an appearance, like rainbow is a designation for an appearance of light and air and water. We experience emptiness in terms of the ungovernableness of things. That experience is arising not because we want it or don't want it, but everything is arising out of conditions, out of appropriate conditions. We can experience emptiness by this direct looking at the empty nature of the mind itself. So from all these sides and angles, you know, we begin to get a sense of the fullness of what this word shunyata means. But going back to that original verse of Shabkar, the nature of the mind is not just empty. It is also naturally radiant. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant. So radiant here does not refer to light. You know, it's a translation from different Asian languages, in this case Tibetan. And that word actually means the knowing Cognizing faculty. That's what radiant means. And so that's why the mind is not space. It's space like, but it also has this cognizing faculty, this knowing faculty, and that's what its radiance is. Now, this awareness or this cognizing faculty, in some sense, is the great mystery of our lives. You know, like starlight and non-being, we're looking for it, we can look for it, but there's nothing to find. It's like looking for space. Yet at that same time, we know, because we there's the experience of this innate knowing capacity. We could think of it as the innate wakefulness of mind. It's not something we need to create. It is the very nature of mind. Awareness is the nature of mind. This is what's meant by being mind being naturally radiant. Buddhadasa, who was one of the great Thai masters, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. And so it's this union of emptiness and awareness emptiness and cognizing emptiness and knowing that's what characterizes the nature of mind So the nature of mind is empty like space it's also an an innate wakefulness and as many traditions point out there's also an inherent purity to this nature of mind. One of the great founders of Korean Zen, his name was Shinul, in the I forget, 12th century, something back then. He taught that the nature of the nature of mind is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. So the nature of mind, the nature of this knowing awareness is not something we need to develop or get but it's what we can come back to again and again as we let go of various subtle and not so subtle attachments and defilements. These are the things that obscure this natural knowing, this natural radiance. So a mantra, that a little mantra that I've used in my practice a lot, when I feel the mind caught up in some grasping or clinging or wanting you know, or craving or kind of struggling for mindfulness, I'll just use the little phrase, already aware. It's already here. It's not something I have to look for. It's not something we need to get It's simply dropping back into this natural knowing capacity of the mind. It's already here. We've simply been pulled out of it. So there's an image that describes this movement from attachment, we could call it deluded mind, to awareness. From delusion to the wisdom mind of emptiness. From self center to zero center. And that's the image uh, which different teachers and traditions have used of ice and water. Being in New England, we're well acquainted with ice. It's hard, it's solid, it's frozen. And so this is the experience of the mind when there is identification with any arising object, with sensations in the body, with thoughts, with emotions, with knowing itself. Whenever there is identification with any arising objects, that's the contraction of mind which could be likened to ice it's when we're lost in the movies of our minds. It's like being in a theater and getting so lost in the story, so engaged with the story, we forget we're watching a movie. You know, our bodies and our emotions on some level are engaged with what's happening. We're believing, at least on some level, In the reality of what we're seeing, that what's happening on the screen is real, or it's like being in a dream state. You know, where everything in that state, in a dream, everything seems so real and so vivid, and we're so involved with it. But when we awaken from the dream, or if we're in the theater and then we happen to look up and see the beam of light, you know, that's just being projected on the screen. We realize that, on a more ultimate level, nothing at all is happening. There's no man, there's no woman, there's no love scene, there's no car chase. It's all just pixels of light that's happening. But when we're involved in the story, we don't realize that, we're just lost. Okay, so they take it one step further, and this, this is kind of a a mind opening. There's a mind opening possibility here. Okay, we can understand. You know, we see that oh, everything that's happening on the screen is just this projection of the light and color. So we see everything happening on the screen is just an appearance. But what's our experience even of the light when there's no screen on which it can land? How do we experience light when there's no object that it alights on? We don't even experience it as light. If on top of this non-being is, who can understand it? It's like the potential of the, the unmanifest. It's pretty amazing. When <laughs> yeah, I mean, we think the, the nature of our mind, the empty nature, the empty radiant nature. So in our lives, we see ice form many times a day. We get caught up in moments of desire, or anger, or worry, or agitation, you know, or pride, or impatience, or longing. And we can feel the contraction. We can feel that solidification of the sense of self at that time in those moments of identification. It's ice is forming. Now, water represents the nature of awareness which means consciousness free of delusion naturally radiant there's a wonderful thai uh, woman that she seems to have been an hunt. Uh, she died recently her, her name is upasaka Ki, and a powerful teacher and wrote this wonderful there's a wonderful book of her teachings called pure and simple and very zen-like in its incisiveness. I I would very much recommend that book, Pure and Simple. Pasaka Ki. And the the name of the book is Pure and Simple and she talked very often of awareness pure and simple. And so that's that, what what the image of water refers to. This awareness is unfrozen, it's unfixated, it's uncontracted, it's not identified with anything. It's that moment when we step out of the movie, out of the theater, realizing it was just a movie, or coming out of a mind drama that we've been lost in for however long, realizing it was only a thought, or a passing cloud of emotion. Now there's one great discovery here. And that is the discovery that water or awareness is nothing other than melted ice. So it's not that awareness is some far off other state, but rather it's this very mind unfrozen, this very mind free of clinging, free of attachment. And the Buddha spoke so often of liberation through non-clinging. Of course, as I've mentioned before, sometimes we feel like we're in the open flow of awareness, the open flow of water, free-flowing, empty awareness. But it's really only slush. It's not quite free-flowing awareness. And this slush mind refers to the subtle attachment, subtle identification, you know, that we hardly know are there. You know, we see this often in the practice. We can be resting, in what we feel is open awareness, choiceless awareness. And then we're just in that, and it feels so clear and so open. And then in a moment... It just might be this intuitive, momentary relaxing of something that we didn't even know we were holding. you know. And it might be attachment to the awareness itself, attachment to that state itself. Very subtle identifications and attachments, which as we simply go on with our practice, also reveal themselves. We let go of those as well. The mind's nature is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, this knowing, this innate wakefulness, and ceaselessly responsive. So in the next talk, talk about this compassionate responsiveness, you know, and how we can recognize it and live it and manifest it in the world let's sit for a few minutes